Greetings, orcaholics, sea changers, and fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. Welcome to the Whale Scout Podcast. Okay, welcome to a special scan and news bulletin. Okay, this is both. Sort of. I'm Mark Laren Young, and I'm talking to the host of the Whale Scout Podcast, Whitney Negabauer. When the news broke that Washington Governor Jay Inslee was putting $1.1 billion into orca recovery to save the southern residents, I thought every orca in the Salish Sea was going to find salmon in their Christmas stocking. Seriously, word is Inslee is running for president and he's building his platform around saving the whales. But the harder you look the less there really is. It was kind of like all the money the Trudeau government claims is going towards saving the orcas. Thanks to Tahlequah, a certain pipeline Canadians bought this summer, and a court decision that says we can't pretend that bitumen will be transported across from Burnaby to Beijing via Star Trek transporter beams, the Canadian government now pretends that any money spent on or around our oceans goes on the orcas tab. And it seems that's what Inslee did too. Ferry upgrades he's already committed to culverts that have to be built by law. Whitney Negabauer has been all over the Washington political scene this year as host of the Whale Scout podcast. So instead of interviewing all of her guests, I figured we'd just call her and get a beginner's guide to what this $1.1 billion to help the orcas really means. Spoiler alert, it does not mean $1.1 billion to help the orcas. We talk about the whale watching moratorium, shooting sea lions, whale scout, and much, much, much more. Scan It is brought to you monthly by our producers, listeners like you, who support us through Patreon.com and our new Scan It tip jar, which you can find in our show notes. Everyone who clicks subscribe on iTunes also helps because those subscriptions get us more sponsors. So if you haven't subscribed yet, go to it now. I'll wait. Awesome. Thanks. Once we've got enough supporters, we'd love to do this twice a month, weekly, daily, but how do we not talk about a billion dollars for orcas? And yeah, we'd also love to dive into the fish arm decisions in the Broughton Archipelago too, but for that discussion, you're going to have to subscribe to our newsletter or join us on Facebook for now. But this special news bulletin is brought to you by Tahlequah, also known as J35, also known as the Grieving Orca Mom, also known as the reason orcas are such major news that they may be at the heart of a freaking presidential campaign. And Christmas plug, not too late to buy my book about Moby Doll, the killer whale who changed the world in paperback or audio, narrated by me. Or the 100-year-old whale, available on Vimeo. And there's a special discount code for Scanna listeners if you check out our show notes, where we'll also plug all of my other merch. And here's a special holiday offer. If you sign on as a Patreon subscriber before the end of 2018, we will send you a free download link for our award-winning documentary about Granny, that is, The Hundred-Year-Old Whale. And now, I really wish I had an awesome British accent to introduce her with. If you listen to the Whale Scout podcast, you'd know why. Whitney Negabauer. Thank you so much for doing this. Of course. It's exciting that I can be on your podcast. Well, it's kind of fun to switch sides like this. <laughs> Since you did what like I'm the- actually yeah. nervous. <laughs> like I'm not used to being on this side. <laughs> well, it's about time. I mean, this works perfectly. I think it's great. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, I'm so glad we're doing this because I've been listening to all your recent podcasts on what's going on in the States and, you know, most of my listeners are Canadian. So to have somebody kind of break down what's going on there right now was really helpful. And I thought, okay, I can either interview all five of your recent guests or I can just talk to you. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do my best to, to try and, you know, break down what's going on right now. It's a lot really. Um, which is good. It really is. Well, the funny thing is, as soon as, you know, we had the announcement in Canada, I think it was 160 million from the Trudeau government, I immediately went to, oh, I bet you it's not all that. And 
but sure enough, when your governor Jay Inslee announced the one the one billion, I thought, wow, this is so amazing. And then I listened to you crunch the numbers on the show the other day with Monica Wyland, and I just went, wow, okay, uh, had the same feeling I had when I went through Trudeau's numbers that it's a bit of an optical illusion. So can you walk me through what those numbers really are and which are new and which are things that really he legally had to do and just added to the Orca's tab? Of course. Yeah. You know, like when we all heard that announcement, we were like, holy smokes, this is huge. And, you know, it really is huge. The fact that our state governor stuck his neck out like that first in creating a task force for orca recovery and then secondly for um you know really kind of listening to a lot of those recommendations whether they were good or bad and seeing them through and then coming out in his announcement of his budget proposal and saying and you know what i'm putting 1.1 billion dollars for orca recovery in this state so, I mean, first of all, it was a big deal that that happened. Now, of course, let's look at the numbers and where the money all goes to. And then we get a little bit disappointed. Um, so I, I, I talked about this, um, as you mentioned, with Monica Whelan. And we went through and looked at the biggest numbers off the top. And so... The biggest number that they came up with for the um, was for habitat restoration, and that's great. Um, but then when I talked to a lot of my colleagues who are on the ground, who are working on salmon recovery in the state, and they said, mm, well, you know, we, we we're crunching the numbers here, and we're looking at where the dollars are falling in to different categories. And the salmon recovery programs that are already well established in our state and that are um, 80% about of those funds are targeted towards Chinook, which of course are the most important for our whales, that the numbers that were coming in were only a minor increase over had um, been allocated historically. So the way that our budget works in Washington state is that the governor will announce a proposed budget. That's just what happened um, this last week. And it's a biennial budget for so it's for two years. And then his numbers will go through the legislature. And so um, it basically goes through a political process where um, the the folks down in Olympia in our capital can go through and um, basically uh, move some numbers around and settle on what works for them <laughs> to keep it really simple. And so usually what happens is that the governor sets a budget. And then when it goes through Olympia, those numbers stay the same or get a little bit smaller. So you really want governor Inslee to go in and set the bar really high. And so when I asked my, some of my friends uh, uh, like Jeanette Dorner, who are working on the ground in salmon recovery, they said, well, these programs are only coming in at minor increases. For example, the Salmon Recovery Funding Board, at the last biennial budget, they were given $19.7 million, but they, this year, had asked for $88.9 million, and the governor allocated $36 million. So it's, it's an increase for sure, um, but you know, it's not the, the $88.9 million that they were asking for. And I think when you know, J35 was out there carrying her dead calf on her nose for 17 days and everyone's working on their budgets and they thought, gosh, I think, you know, Inslee's, he's serious about this. He's going to go big. He's going to go bold. That was the word that was used for this whole process. And, you know, and, and they just, it, it didn't materialize like that. Um, there's another program called the Puget Sound Acquisition and Restoration Fund. So this is like large capital projects. These are big projects that um, are like dam removal. At the beginning of the process, they had two dam removal projects on there for the middle fork of the Nooksack River, which is in the northern end of our state, and then on um, the Pilchuck River. And the, this program and all of our salmon recovery programs have been funded at like 15% of what's actually needed. 
And um, in, in this process, they were they to make a ranked list and the pill chuck dam removal was ranked number three. And a friend that I uh, went to graduate school with was actually the lead entity on the project and said, yeah, you know, we're going to pull that project from the, the list, even though we're number three. Just so little money goes into this program that we don't think that we're going to make the cut. So we're going to pull it off this program and, and use other money to, to, to pay for it. So, you know, in that program, the last biennium, they uh, had $40 million. This time around, they asked for 79.6. And the governor uh, in his proposed budget allocated 42.5. So most of those project, projects will go unfunded. And they're permitted. They're ready to go. Everyone wants these dams down. And, um, you know, I think number one, which is the Middle Fork Nooksack River Dam, will come down, of course, with extra funding help from the late Paul Allen. Um, but, you know, there's and there's other programs as well that just are have projects that are sitting and waiting for money and they're not getting done. And it's the critical habitat restoration projects that we're all saying need to get done for the fish and for the whales. And so the money didn't really trickle down to where we thought it would matter the most. Can you walk through what you were doing, what you were saying on your podcast the other day about how 750 million went for something that they had to do, the 100 million for the ferries they'd already decided on doing, and now they're pretending it's all about the orcas and it really isn't? <laughs> yes, I certainly can. So you just called out um, the, I think the number two, uh, on the list of um, the highest amount of funding, which was $296 million for culvert replacement. And so here's the story on that. So in Washington state, there was a, uh, a court case that's been ongoing for uh, decades. And the court case basically goes something like this, where the, the treaty tribes in our state said, we are, um, because of the Bolt decision in the 70s, uh, we are entitled to half of all the fish, okay? And so now when certain salmon runs are just crushed and they're at zero fish, half of zero fish is still zero. So um, the habitat that um, people have destroyed needs to be repaired in order to um, for their treaty uh, rights to be um, fully appreciated and, and given. And so there was this culvert case, and what culverts are are these little basically pipes that run under the roads that allow streams um, to pass through underneath roads. And if built too small or in the wrong placement then fish can't pass. And it's a fish passage problem. The fish can't get up to spawn. They can't go out the right way. They get um, you know, scoured out because of flooding. And so the, the tribes in Washington state sued the state to fix all of these culverts that had destroyed access for fish. And so it went back and forth in the courts. And up till this summer, finally went all the way up to the Supreme Court and um, it, the Supreme Court decided that, yes, in fact, Washington state has to fix the culverts. The tribes won the case. And that's a big deal. I mean, they put their tribal treaty rights on the line for this. And so um, it's, of course, it's like road construction. It's very expensive. And so Washington state now is mandated to fix these culverts. So about third of the $1.1 billion is for culvert replacement. So now I mentioned that the fish have to pass through these culverts and they're pretty small. Well, that's because the fish that are using these are mostly coho and chum that are going way up into these smaller reaches of the streams. Uh, the Chinook, which of course are our orca food, they're not so much using these, these culverts and the, the culverts aren't really that much of a problem for Chinook. Um, and in fact, in the task force's recommendations, they did say we need to prioritize burial remover, burial, barrier removal, uh, but prioritizing Chinook because that's what matters for the orcas. Now, should the culverts be taken out for the fish and for the tribes? Absolutely. I mean, the state is mandated to do that. But I don't think you can 
that Governor Inslee can really count that uh, $196 million for, um, sorry, $296 million. My, my math was wrong here, $296 million um, for, for culvert replacement. It's just not for the orcas. Uh, they're not benefiting from this. He should be um, sort of saying it like it is and not putting the orca label on here. It's misleading. Well, and he also put the orca label on your on turning the ferries electric, right? Absolutely, yes. I went to you know the, a lot of the the vessels working group meetings, and they had a representative there from Washington State Ferries, and and he was great. And he said, you know, we're now involved with two executive orders from Governor Inslee, and they just had worked on one where Governor Inslee had said that the Washington state ferries needed to transition to hybrid electric in order to reduce emissions. Um, Governor Inslee is very focused on climate change and ocean acidification. And so that executive order was focused on that. So the ferry system was already working on converting their fleet to hybrid electric, which would not only reduce emissions, but would um, be quieter for the whales. So it's, it is great but it's like $117 million going to swap out uh, some engines on, like, I think it's two ferries. Um, and, you know, we're not even like BC. You guys have way more ferries than we do. Um, and then we have a lot of commuter ferries going back and forth. And so it's, it's important, but, you know, if they stick those ferries, like, down in Tacoma, where our southern resident whales go, like, I don't know. A handful of days during the year, I would say that that $117 million could have been better spent on another salmon recovery program. It was discouraging. So really, and this this is what I saw in Canada as well, anything that had to be done in and around the oceans was suddenly declared good for the orcas, even if it was really good for fish farms, commercial fisheries, uh, tourism, all these other economic drivers, but they were all kind of slapped into the look what we're doing for the orcas, which, hey, I'm, I'm glad everybody wants to say that. I think it's pretty cool that your governor seems to be launching a presidential campaign saying, I'm the guy who's going to save the orcas. <laughs> like, that impresses me. Interesting. Well, because yeah. I keep hearing he's running for president and clearly his big splashy move is being orca guy. So that's impressive. Yeah, you know, it is impressive, and it's been fascinating to watch. And we did have an initiative here in Washington State this fall, uh, Initiative 1631, that was um, targeted at uh, basically putting uh, a fee on the biggest carbon polluters in the state. And it was a, a, a big controversy in the state. And uh, you know, there were you could drive down the road and, and see all these, you know, yes on 1631, no on 1631, and People went through and they put, um, you know, paid for by big oil stickers on all the ones that were saying, you know, no on 1631. I think and, I saw uh, those signs when I was up at Friday Harbor and I had no idea what they were. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and so and it was true that, that the oil companies came in and they launched an enormous campaign to block this. And they succeeded. 1631 did not pass. It was sort of, you know, Governor Inslee's big issue and the voters didn't pass it. So now I think they're working on something different to go through the legislator in Olympia. Um, but you know, this was sort of the climate change and being like a green governor or a green president is, is definitely um, what he's working on. And the orcas have kind of given him a new platform and some new PR, but yeah, I mean, a lot of these sort of programs have already been, Counted for, they've already been in the budget, and it's not like 1.1 billion on top of everything else, and uh, and that. So you know, and I think what he decided to use the money on wasn't quite orca specific, and so you know, I I am being critical, and I'm trying not to look a gift horse in the mouth, but I just think we should use our money wisely. You know, another big thing on here was um, that Monica and I, I didn't talk about. We didn't even have time to talk about this was that um, $75 million goes towards um, 
repairs to hatchery facilities and upgrades to hatchery facilities to accommodate um, the increase in hatchery production that that um, has been called for by the tribe, by fishermen, and um, it's being called, you know, the one thing that we can do to put more fish in the water right away. Um, but there's big habitat problems where the habitat, once those smolts leave the facility, that they're being gobbled up and killed by toxins and predators. And, um, you know, so you have to think like, well, wait a minute, what are we doing? We're going to pay a bunch of money to build hatcheries to rely on them even more and to produce smolts that in my watershed, they, they the, the almost 100% of them you know, don't even make it out into the marine environment. They're getting eaten in the lakes before they can even get out to, uh, to Puget Sound. So, you know, you, you got to be really careful about these dollars because they matter and, you know, it's not an unlimited source. My understanding was that the biggest single thing Washington State could do to move the dial was to move on the Snake River Dam. Can you explain what did or didn't happen, but also explain, because keep in mind, almost no one I've spoken to in Canada, including Orca people, has a real sense of what's up with the Snake River Dam. So if you could talk through what needs to happen and why, but also what did and didn't just happen. The, the Snake River Dams are, um, there's four of them. And what people talk about are the four lower Snake River Dams. And so to give you a little bit of geography, the Snake River is connected to the Columbia River, which flows out to the ocean. And of course, the Columbia River is the border between Oregon and Washington. And when it splits off onto the Snake, the Snake goes up into south uh, west or southeast Washington and then all the way into Idaho. And the, the Columbia, I mean, was once the, the biggest producer of salmon, you know, in the Pacific. And there are stories of the fish that came through the Columbia. Um, talk about June hogs, you know, enormous salmon, the size of grown men. I mean, it's just like ridiculous. And the photos that you see in black and white, like you can't even believe them. It, it just, it looks fake, right? How big these salmon are. And um, of course our whales go all the way down. We know from satellite tags, they go all the way down to Oregon and California, and they spend, in fact, a lot of time at the mouth of the Columbia River, presumably eating you know, Columbia and Snake River fish. And in fact, um, from scale samples, we know that they're eating um, both. And so the, the big deal about these dams is that, they're, that they're, they're way up in the watershed. And the salmon, particularly the spring Chinook, that would be going way up into these areas would be really big and really fat. And that's because they need to pack on a lot of lipids, a lot of fat in order to get all the way to Idaho. They have to live off those fat reserves. So the genetics in these fish are really important. I mean, this is great, delicious orca food that's coming from the snake river. And uh, today those fish would have to pass, uh, 14 dams just to get to their spawning grounds. So that's a big deal. Wow. Um, and at each dam, you're losing some of those fish, right? Even though they're maybe fish ladders, uh, you're losing a small percentage of each of those, uh, of, of those fish. And even if they can get up there, all the smolts, right, that are coming back down are having to go through all these dams again. And the smolts that are migrating out to the ocean, that's a really big deal. We're losing a lot of smolts in those, um, at, at each of those dams. And so, you know, of course, politics plays into all of this. And um, the argument as of right now says that those dams are old, they're obsolete, they're not producing that much power, and they need to go. And in fact, they never should have been built in the first place. Um, so they do provide some energy and it's been argued that that energy can be produced elsewhere in solar and wind. They also provide irrigation to farmers. That's farm country out there. And they also provide transportation for, for farmers that are trying to ship their grain out to Portland or to just get it further West. 
So the dams have locks where large ships can go all the way up to um, basically Idaho and then transport all that, all that grain pretty inexpensively out west. So in the Orca people, <laughs> there's sort of like two schools of thought right now. There's the, the dams now people who are saying the whales are going to go extinct next year unless you take these dams out right now. And then there's another school of thought that says, you know, hey, these dams are bad. They do need to come out. But we need to do this responsibly because the people that live here matter, their livelihoods matter. And, you know, we need to do this in a smart way that keeps all the communities here whole. We need to figure out a way to build better uh, railroads, transport grain. We need to figure out a way to retrofit for irrigation. And we need to, you know, keep working on solar to, to you know, produce jobs and replace that energy. Um, so, so there's that. And at the governor's task force that started back in May, you know, all these voices are there. And of course, the Farm Bureau is sitting at the table at the task force and I don't know, a lot of other um, interests, of course. And the, what, what came down out of the task force recommendations was to put together, and I think this was a great recommendation, a stakeholder um, process, although we could argue too that maybe that should have happened at the ORCA task force, right? How annoying is that, that we're having a process to come up with another process? It's crazy. But that brings everyone that lives in those communities together, that works towards finding solutions to taking the dams down and, and, and making sure that that doesn't cause um, you know, undue harm. And, um, and it seems like the governor sort of took that recommendation, but what I'm hearing now on the ground is that um, they're not calling these like stakeholder processes anymore. They're calling them community meetings and community conversations. So, you know, we don't just want to have a conversation that reestablishes that the people in Eastern Washington want to keep their dams. But, you know, we were really hoping for something that would be more meaningful and productive than that. So, you know, we'll have to see what happens. Those meetings are supposed to take place this summer. So hopefully they'll be more productive than how they're kind of sounding right now. The other major recommendation uh, that had to do with the Snake River dams was to add what they call more spill which means to have more water flow over the dams, hence allowing those smolts to more safely pass through the hydro system. So that would happen on the Snake River dams and all the way through the Columbia. And um, right now, of course, the Bonneville Power Administration, they don't want to spill that water. They want that water to go through their turbines to make energy, make power. Um, and especially when we have low rainfall and drought, they want every drop that they can get to go through the turbines and not be spilled over. But we know through the science that the more water that's spilled, the better the fish do. And there's been some court-ordered spill that's happened, and the fish have responded, and it's been good. So we want to keep that and increase that. Um, so that's something big that happened. and it's really unclear um, if the governor is going to be actually doing that. He came out with what is a three-year rulemaking process, and I've been digging around, and I've been trying to understand if that actually means that there will be spilled this year or not. Um, there's also a parallel process that's trying to deal with these same spill issues, and it sounds like they are going to slowly ramp up. Uh, more spill to the level that the task force recommended. Um, but, it, you know, it wasn't the, the big win that we were hoping for there. Gotcha. So is, did anything, I, I know what qualified to you as a bold move that's actually going to move the dial in a positive direction? Because all, there was all this talk of bold moves. And as far as I can tell, the bold moves had to do with whale watching, which I'd like to get into into with you in a bit and seal culling, neither of which <laughs> strike me as the big solutions everybody was hoping for. 
Yeah. You know, it's funny. We went into this process being like, wow, I wonder we need bold action now. And that was sort of like our motto, bold action now. And like, I think if the governor would have said, yeah, these dams have got to go. And if everyone in Eastern Washington said, yeah, sure. Okay. We'll let you do that, which would have never happened. Uh, we would have been like, yeah, this is great. Uh, this is a bold move, but of course that, that, that couldn't happen and it didn't happen. Um, there are some things like recommendation number one was to fully fund these salmon recovery programs and it didn't happen. And that would have been huge. These programs have funded at 15% basically forever and to have them be fully funded would have been awesome. Um, there are some other things too um, that have to do with just habitat protection. Uh, there are you know, the shorelines in Puget Sound, a lot of them have armoring uh, whether that be docks or seawalls and on private property, there's an exemption that will basically allow a property owner to, to wall up their beach um, without too much hassle. So uh, we would have hoped that that would have um, changed and it might still change going through um, the legislature in Olympia in this winter, but that would have been a huge win. There's talks going into next year about uh, changing the policy that we, we call the no net loss policy. And it basically means that whenever there's development or alteration of habitat, that it has to result in no net loss. So if you destroy something over here, you have to fix it, you know, over here, over there, somewhere else a little bit that's equal. But that really, you know... It, in the end, you end up losing a little bit all the time. It's not like it really is no net loss that is equal. And in fact, that only maintains the status quo for the whales and for the salmon. That's not reaching an improvement. So going into year two, we're hoping to see something like that change. That would be bold. That would be huge. Um, and so, I mean, those are my, my two big ones. The very first task force, force meeting, the, the a tribal member on the task force said, we have to deal with these pinnipeds, these seals and sea lions. Um, the, the fishing community, which was also very well represented on the task force, said the same thing. Um, right now at the Bonneville Dam, which is on the Columbia, the first dam of the series, sea lions can swim right up. Even though it's like 150 miles from the ocean, they can swim right up through. And they're feasting on fish that are getting piled up at the dam, You're basically waiting to get into the fish ladder. And that right now, the in, in Congress, the House and the Senate passed bills with bipartisan support to to remove those seals and sea lions, mostly sea lions in that case, um, and to lethally remove them, like slaughter them, uh, and and. You know, some fishery scientists are saying that that has to happen in order to protect endangered fish. I was at, uh, a few months ago, the Marine Mammal Commission meeting met in Seattle, and they had a whole morning session just on this issue. And you know, right now what they have to do is they have to see a sea lion, they have to see it eat a salmon, and then they have to take it out with a cage and then brand it. And then they have to witness it then um, and document it eating fish like five more times, and then they can lethally remove it. But it's really hard to do that. Um, so what they wanted to do was just to make it really easy and um, explain basically they want to say if there's a sea lion and it's in you know a certain range of where salmon are, where salmon are, are spawning, so they can basically just take them out up to like 1,100 a year. And right now they're not doing anywhere near that number. Um, and now it's sitting on President Trump's desk waiting for signature. And I'd have to say he's going to sign it. I, I don't know. Um, so the, the same sort of issue is happening in in the Puget Sound, in the Salish Sea up in BC as well, where you guys are, where people are talking about, about harbor seals and that they eat a lot of the salmon smolts that are going out. And, um, you know, it was something that through the task force process, they got to a point where they said, let's just keep studying this. We don't really have a good handle on exactly how many smolts are being eaten, exactly on how many harbor seals there are. 
um, what sort of food web interactions are happening. Because, you know, there are the seals are eating hake, which also eat salmon. So if you get rid of the hake, or, you know, then you're kind of like trying to, um, you're having these unintended consequences where you're killing a predator of a predator. Uh, so you have to be careful. Not to mention, in our area, we have a lot of the transient or the mammal-eating killer whales. And, you know, what happens if we just start killing a bunch of harbor seals and we get rid of their food base? Are we going to start seeing them starving and emaciated? Um, You know, there have been studies that have shown that those transient killer whales are actually doing a pretty good job at you know, regulating the harbor seal population on their own. And as I pointed out, that they're doing that without a budget request. They're doing it absolutely for free. And so we should probably just let them, you know, get a handle on it. And I think nature will balance itself out better than we can. I quite liked your theory. Either that or we should find a way to pay the big whales. You know, just <laughs> like, because seriously, you know, how big a line, budget line item is that going to be? Uh, it's a bit freaky that we're going back to the... I mean, th- this is basically the bad old days of sending seal noses into governments for, yeah. you know, for money, isn't it? And I, I know that we're seeing all these shootings out in Washington State right now, which is pretty freaky. Um, the the sea lions that are washing up on the beach, that's really unnerving. Yeah, and it's happening, like, in Seattle, not just like in Puget Sound somewhere that might be kind of rural and quiet. No, it's happening in Elliott Bay. I didn't realize and... that till you were explaining it because I didn't, I didn't recognize the geography. So really, this is happening in an urban area. People are going out and shooting these, these sea lions. Is it seal, sea lions are shooting or seals or both? These are sea lions. And what, we, what you know, is presumed to be happening here is that is that you know these sea lions are taking fish off of fishermen's lines? Maybe not. Maybe they're just hauled out. We have no idea. There's like, from what I understand, there's basically no um, evidence or any leads on what's happening here. Um, it's just sea lions washing up on the beaches in West Seattle with gunshot wounds to the head. Um, and so it could be that you know I, my, my personal theory is that. People are frustrated. They want to see action. They're, they're taking things into their own hands. And some of these, uh, you know, like on the Columbia with the Bonneville, you know, A-OK to shoot them there. <laughs> it's sort of justifying what, what's happening up in Puget Sound, even though it's very illegal. Um, so, yeah, it, it's scary to see and, and unnerving that this is happening in an urban area. and No one's, you know, hearing about it or, or hearing gunshots or anything. This is something I've been trying to to dive into on this side of the border. Is there any actual penalty for this? If if somebody, you know, shows up with video tomorrow of somebody hunting these sea lions, what are the consequences for the person doing this? Oh boy, I don't know the top of my head, but I would presume hefty fees and, and possibly jail time. I mean, these are protected under the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Um yeah, I don't know, but I, I, it can't be good. <laughs> there was a story of, of this year where Fish and Wildlife caught a guy who had been like stashing all these Dungeness crab in uh, in trash cans, basically, and 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 holding them underwater, and then pulling them up out of season, and then you know, bringing them in. And he had his boat taken away. Um, you know, it was you know like big time stuff, and that was over crab. So, uh, yeah, it, it can't be good. You've got much heftier penalties on your side of the border for this stuff, which, you know, never fails to impress me. I, I spotted somebody doing illegal stuff with a drone around some orcas, and I was told to send the video because it was on the U.S. side of the border. And I was told that if I sent the video to somebody in your side of the border, there might be penalties. In Canada, we still didn't have anything wired for drones when I took the, took this footage. So... You know, I've been, it's quite interesting seeing what's legal where. Well, did you follow up on that? No, I never found out where that ended up. Yeah. Okay. I hear that a lot about um, drone and, you know, boaters behaving badly around whales is that you can send all that stuff in, but it's really hard to enforce or see follow through. Um, 
with a with a, a penalty or anything. Um, but yeah, th- there's a lot of differences between the U.S. and Canada and how we're approaching these uh, recovery of orcas. Well, this gets into my questions around the big, apparently bold action of the moratorium. Can you talk about that and your thoughts on it? <laughs> yeah. So this was a surprise, and um, what happened was, you know, at the very first. Uh, we had, so the task force meets as a whole, there's like close to 50 members. And then there were three working groups, went on vessels, toxins, and prey. And I went to as many of these meetings as I could. And the, not all the members are the same. Some task force members are also vessel working group members. And some working group members are not on the task force. If it couldn't get more confusing, there you go. So I went to uh, the very first vessel working group meeting. And they basically said, this is a big brainstorming meeting out of all the possibilities that exist. Let's start throwing some stuff on this piece of paper that we could do regarding vessels that would help the whales. And I should also mention at this very first meeting that the Navy was not present, which I thought was a a big problem in year one, which hopefully will be addressed in year two. The Navy needs to be at the table in dealing with this, that sound from sonar and all of their exercises with underwater explosives and things like that are kind of important. Um, so hopefully we'll get to that to year two. But anyways, back to the first vessel working group meeting. All these different possibilities were listed and, um, you know, go slow, further away, view whales from further away, have the ferry slow down all the time, reroute shipping lanes. And um, one member of the working group member, uh, said let's put a moratorium on whale watching and so it was added to the list and through these meetings all of the lists were whittled down little by little and that recommendation was left off because the scientists that were sitting in the room said no I think there are better things up here and um, that will protect the whales and so we should go with these recommendations and through um, the long process since May, they got to a point in the, the fall where they said, okay, these are the recommendations we think are the best for, for vessels, for, for small vessels I'll talk about now. And they were to have a go slow zone that was like, uh, I believe it was half a mile out or even more. And they wanted the vessels to, to slow down to a no wake uh, because vessel speed is the greatest predictor of actual sound being received by the whales. And that work was done by one of the, our whale scout board members, Juliana Houghton, where they put these suction cup tags of hydrophones on the whales themselves. And they listen to the, what the whales are hearing themselves underwater and speed vessel speed was the most important thing. So they said, okay, let's get all these boats to just slow way down because even if they're really far away, we just got to have them to slow down because a vessel moving really fast at, you know, 400 yards or beyond that is way worse than a boat that's going really uh, slow, but close to a whale. So they came up with that recommendation. They had a permit system on commercial whale watching boats. They were going to have a, what they call a $10 endorsement or basically like a, a recreational permit for, um, for recreational boats that just had them pay into a system that helped pay for enforcement and also actually gave them the B whale wise recommendations for, or, sorry, excuse me, the B whale wise regulations for how to motor around the whales. And, and that was a huge deal because For a long time, we have not been able to get that information out to recreational voters. So just that in itself was huge. Um, And then, you know, at at literally the last task force meeting, um, there was one other uh, proposal on the table still that had to do with a no-go zone on the west side of San Juan Island. And this is something that has been talked about for um, like 10 years or more. And, um, they were in a discussion about that. And then it turned into something different where they said, you know what, 
we're having some trouble coming up with consensus on where this no-go zone should be, if it should even exist. Uh, you know, the the tribes don't like it because it would exclude all vessels and that would interfere with tribal treaty rights and fishing. And, you know, a lot of the recreational fishermen didn't like it because, you know, big surprise, there are fish there that they want that the orcas also want. So excluding them is also a loss for them. And, and literally at the very end, they just said, you know what we want to propose is a moratorium on whale watching. And there was a big process concern here because this was the final meeting. And they said, we're not introducing new proposals. This is strictly to get consensus on the last little details of these things. And we're going to vote on which actions are allowed are, are going to be moved forward um, for the ORCA task force. And the co and the representative from the Pacific Whale Watch Association said, "Hey, wait a minute! You know this is out of order." And the co-chairs allowed it to proceed, and and it it just got the votes. You can look around the table, around that room, and it got the votes. And the thing is, is that the those working group members, those scientists, aren't members of the task force. There wasn't a single person sitting in the room, including Ken Balcom, who would have spoken up and said, hey, I'm an orca scientist. I don't think this is right. Um, you know, um, so it moved through. It got included in the package. It voted through. And it looks like Governor Inslee, despite having conversations with a lot of these scientists and other stakeholders, decided that the moratorium was a good idea and also included what I think happened was he tried to include some further protections um, should the moratorium, uh, the scientists were, were warning him, this could make things worse for the whales. And so I think what he tried to do was, was increase the distance um, to 400 yards instead of 200 yards. So he took it another step further and said all vessels have to stay 400 yards away from whales. And uh, we're still not sure if that applies to just residents or to transients as well. Um, so yeah, the governor recommended it and now it will probably go through some sort of rulemaking process, um, probably with public comments. So it's not totally over yet, um, but my personal opinion and my belief is that, you know, the moratorium is a really scary idea. It's not getting rid of boats. If the whale watching moratorium was to get rid of all boats on the water, I'd be like, yeah, this is actually a really good idea. But we're in an urban environment and getting whale watching boats, both commercial and recreational, off, you know, and away from those whales sort of leaves them out in the open. And I say at a greater risk of being um, having boats you know, zoom by at high speed, which I've already explained is noisier and even more detrimental to their foraging patterns. And quite frankly, it's, it sets up for some scary uh, ship strike um, issues. So, you know, at least now when the commercial whale watch operators are on scene, not only are they the ones that are setting the behavior as how to, how to boat around whales, how far away you should be, how slow you should go. Um, so they're not there setting that precedent anymore. And they're not there as um, an indicator on the water that, hey, there's whales here. You might want to slow down as you come around this corner because um, we've got, you know, J35 here and other whales that are, um, uh, I'm quite sensitive. So, um, you know, I think that that's a problem. And the fact that the industry and just people going out and seeing the whales is a really, really um, inspiring experience. And I would say that a lot of the, the big time orca advocates and scientists, environmentalists have had an awesome experience seeing these whales and that's why they want to protect them. And, you know, losing that I, is, is, is scary. Um, and we've been working hard trying to take all whale watchers and direct their interest into protecting habitat for salmon and, you know, it's, it's different than being out in the water looking at whales to now go on land and go look at your rivers and streams and look at your feet and understand what needs to happen, you know, way over here. 
So we've been working really hard to do that. And um, I, I feel like the whale watching moratorium could result in a loss of constituency that um, would be tragic. I was told that basically Senator Kevin Ranker showed up and talked everybody into passing this. And I was wondering what the deal was with that, because it really I mean, I was following the task force, too. And this came completely out of left field, like your original the the kind of regulations you were looking at seemed really well thought out and yeah. really like everything looked, you know, all of the licensing, all the enforcement, it actually looked like a plan. And this doesn't look yeah. like a plan that the, the cynic in me worries that this is about the Southern residents going extinct off camera. Yeah. you know, yeah, people are concerned about that, 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 you know, when, when J 35 story, when they saw her and carry on her calf in that story captured the hearts of, of millions all around the world. And, and that's, that's important. Um, you know, I don't think that whale watching should be a free for all. I think that it should be permitted and that there should be limits. I mean, this is an endangered species. You know, it can't be a free for all. And to be honest, it has, you know, in the past it was a free for all and, um, it wasn't working. And what was worked on really hard to the task force process, you know, it was the whale watch operators that came under their new leadership and said, look, we want to do the right thing. We're here to try and, and make this work. Tell, tell, tell us what the research says, and we will modify the way that we operate. We will be permitted, and we will change in order um, to do the right thing. And and they gave compromises and uh, you know, we're, we're on the right path to make science-based management decisions. And yeah, this totally came out of left field. And um, it was Senator Ranker within the last few meetings, you know, it seemed to me, it seemed like the facilitation process was stalling. It was not making any progress. It was all about wordsmithing. You know, it would be about an action to, um, I can't even think of an example, um, you know, to like spill water over the dams, let's say. And then they would, person would come in and say, well, you know, we, we don't want to do that because we're losing money and that money you know, we'd rather spend on habitat restoration. So they said, oh, okay, we'll change the wording to this. And then someone else would come in and say, oh, no, we, we have to spill. It's the best thing we can do according to the science. Says, oh, we'll change the wording to this then. So all it was was back and forth wordsmithing. And it wasn't building consensus. It wasn't bringing people together to, to give and to take. And, and I think that's when Senator Ranker stepped in. And he started having what we had described or some of these side conversations where he was pulling people away from the table to, to do I don't know what, uh, quite frankly. And we saw a lot more of these side conversations happening at the same time as the regular task force meetings were going on. And, um, and I think Senator Ranker really wanted that no-go zone. You know, he's a senator, he's from Orcas Island, uh, you know, near San Juan Island, where this no-go zone was. And I think he really wanted to see that through, and he came up with a really wonky-shaped no-go zone that would basically, you know, make the fishermen happy, and um, it would, but it did nothing for the whales, really, right? It was like this really narrow thing that would basically put boaters right in the path of the whales. So I think he realized that after a while, but he was at least trying to, like, get the fishermen on board, get the tribes on board, trying to like build some consensus. And I think, you know, in some of those side conversations, they just got to some point and he got frustrated, whether it was the permit system with the whale watch boats, um, our other vessel issues. And I know he was talking a lot with the recreational voters association and they were pissed about the $10 fee uh, you know, because their goal is to get as many boaters out in the water as possible and remove as many barriers to getting out in the water as possible. 
And, you know, that $10 fee is now an opt out. And I don't even know if the governor Inslee included that. Um, but that was that would have been enormous. I would have told every recreational voter, this is how you vote around the whales. Do it right. Don't be an idiot. <laughs> and so basically just, they banned. Have, so the idea is a moratorium on whale watchers, but let's encourage recreational boaters to show up in droves. Yeah, yeah, right. So with, so with not, no whale educated. wise licensing or anything like that. Yeah. Wow. Opt out. You don't have to see it. You don't have to learn it. You don't have to know it. Right? It was a thousand more tree. You're not even allowed to look. So I thought this sounded dodgy before. Now it sounds really bad. Yeah. And you know, I I think you know, Senator Ranker was was he was trying to do the right thing, but it just it came off so poorly. And I think people are, are frustrated and, um, and, and irritated and they wanted the task force process to be transparent. And it came off, you know, everyone feeling really icky about it, you know, and, and, and the, the moratorium, it wasn't put on the table by Senator Ranker. It was actually put on the table, um, by a representative from Fish and Wildlife. Um, so, you know, I think that maybe in some of these backroom deals that part of the whale watching moratorium came forward as a solution that would make other members of the task force happy and then therefore would make everyone happy. And, you know, I was surprised that, that um, a recommendation dealing with the size and scope of a no-go zone on the west side of San Juan Island could be all of a sudden turned into a whale watch moratorium. Um, those things seem very unrelated to me. And went through you know, no no public process. It wasn't vetted by the scientists. No one was even sitting at the table who could have answered the question of, is this good for the whales or not? I was really um, surprised by the fact that basically Ken Balcom, you know, who runs... Center for Whale Research, Monica Wheeland, Orca Behavior, uh, David Bain, who's like one of the, the senior scientists, all not only came out against this, but all felt they'd pretty much been sideswiped. This is from listening to your podcast, but also from following them all online, who are all talking about the potential unintended consequences of this being a nightmare because it is so, it, it wasn't thought out or planned in any real way. Yeah, and it leaves those other really good recommendations sort of useless or confusing. Um, you know, I what what I imagine happening is someone too accidentally coming upon whales, and right now what they do is they're super spread out, super scattered. They're all spread foraging. They're not grouped up anymore like they used to be. They go, oh my God, I'm about to get caught whale watching. And then start motoring away quickly to not get caught and then end up running into more whales that are spread out foraging. And that happening over and over and over all day long. Um, so, you know, that's that's my concern and it could happen. Um, I, I don't know. We'll have to see if it continues to move forward. Can you, you, you were just getting into it there, but can you explain basically the danger this creates in terms of of ship strikes because this is what has i've heard come up again and again from you know the people who are generally you know top of my speed dial list on on orca issues like ken yeah you know a lot, a lot of times when we talk about ship strike we're thinking of like north atlantic right whales and, and big commercial shipping vessels and things like that um you know there have been two rather mysterious deaths um, that of L112 and, and J34, where they had what is being called from the necropsy reports, blunt force trauma. So they were struck by something, um, but no, no, you know, no vessel reported it or um, what, what was, had any evidence that it was in fact a vessel. Um, it could have some, something to do with Navy exercises that are going on. Uh, it was underwater explosives, whether that could be causing it, or um, I think another interesting hypothesis others have brought up is that those explosions or sonar use could result in a temporary hearing loss 
that then can be disorienting and you might be more likely to bump into something at that point. Um, so, so, so there's that. And, and, you know, we live in an urban environment where, you know, there's boats going here and there, they're going fishing. They don't want to see whales. They just want to get to Roche Harbor for happy hour. And if they're zooming through, um, not only are they at greater risk of having close calls with the whales themselves, um, but they're also just creating a lot more noise constantly. Um, and that interrupts with the killer whales foraging for salmon. Gotcha. Anything else that I should be mentioning on this, you know, to, to make it clear what's actually happening in the States and what isn't. Yeah, I think those are the main, those are the main big topics that we have going on right now. Uh, you've got pinnipeds, snake river, um, hatchery increases, of course, whale watching, um, yeah, I think those are the big ones. Well, let's make sure we do a plug for Whale Scout. So can you talk about Whale Scout and your podcast so I can make sure everybody listens? Because I do mention it at the end of mine sometimes and say, go check out Whale Scout. So, Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so Whale Scout was, uh, it's a group, a nonprofit uh, based in Bothell, just outside of Seattle. I started in 2013 and and I, I it began as a group of volunteer naturalists that went out in the Seattle and Tacoma area and helped the public watch whales from shore. And we really were trying to get as many people down here aware of the habitat use of the southern residents in our urban waters, not just in the San Juans. A lot of people down here think that the whales just kind of do loops around the San Juans all the time. But they do come down into Puget Sound, all the way down to Tacoma. So we help people watch those whales from shore. And the goal is to channel their interest into habitat restoration projects. So within the first year or so, we started partnering with other organizations that were doing salmon habitat restoration. We call them Whale Scout Helping Out events. And this last year, we got a grant through the Nature Conservancy where we're able to do 13 of these helping out events every year. And we've also taken on restoration work on private property that we're, we're leading. And all of our events are targeted at restoring Chinook salmon. Um, so those are our two programs that we have uh, locally on the ground. Uh, and then we also have our Whale Scout podcast, which is on iTunes and on our website, whalescout.org. Um, we're also doing advocacy work, going to these task force meetings and, you know, other uh, meetings like uh, the Salmon Recovery Funding Board. And we'll be you know, pretty active in Olympia this winter, starting in January, if you want to follow what's going on with uh, rulemaking and lawmaking in Washington State. And finally, we're, we're working on a program called Podmatch. And what it is, it's, it's an online tool where you can go in and we're working on expanding it up to BC very soon where you can type in your, your, your city or your zip code and hit go and restoration work party events close to your home will populate on a map and on a list. And you I can love that. go in there and you can sign up for different events. Yeah. And, um, and, and get incentives too. You know, we've been working pretty closely with the whale watch, um, operators to try and get all of their passengers involved going back home um, to Oregon, California, and back to Washington State and and doing on-the-ground habitat restoration projects. I just saw a stat with the San Juan uh, Visitors Bureau that 40% of their visitors are from Washington State. So these are salmon-supporting watersheds. We should be saying go home and uh, and, and do the right thing at home and, and uh help uh, make more baby salmon for the orchids to eat right where you live. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. And I would like to see some of that 1.1 billion go to you. I think that would be really cool. <laughs> well, it's not, but that would be really nice. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. And everybody check out the Whale Scout podcast. It's awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great night. You too.
Thanks for checking out the Whale Scout, I mean, Scanna Podcast. If you like the show, please spread the word. Subscribe to our newsletter. Check out our media magazine. Visit our YouTube channel for cool bonus material, including ideas on how you can make ways for orcas, oceans, the environment, and 100-year-old whales. And if you'd like to help us make more podcasts more often, join our pod at patreon.com. If Patreon isn't your thing, we just set up that scan tip jar. Just check out our show notes. If the show didn't work for you, this was Canada Land, and I'm Jesse Brown. Now, be sure to click the subscribe button so you don't miss our upcoming episodes, including our next one, which features one of my heroes, Sea Shepherd founder, Paul Watson. We've also got Peter Fallaban, author of the amazing The Inner Life of Animals. He's the guy who came up with the idea of the Wood Wide Web. And our friend Jason Colby, author of the awesome book, Orcas, How We Came to Know and Love, the ocean's greatest predator. Scanna is produced by the always incredible Rain Banu with the assistance of Emma Eslake, Chantal Heward, Josie Liecti, and Clarita Ritchie. And just a reminder about our special holiday offer. If you sign on as a Patreon patron before the end of 2018, we will send you a free download link to the award-winning documentary about Granny, The Hundred-Year-Old Whale. I'm Mark Laren Young. Namaste.